Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to Word in Your Ear. Who's been to Word in Your Ear before? Okay, okay a reasonable number. Uh, very special evening uh, this evening for a number of reasons. Not least the fact we've got air conditioning in here for the first time. So, yeah, well, you know, which, uh, people would be delighted to hear that. People who are regular, regular visitors. But also, uh, as you'll see, because of our very special guest, I, I have to start by showing you this, actually. This was, I bought this when I was 16 years old wow. in 1966, and I used to spend hours looking at the cover, just the information right. in the cover, and I used to think, who's that extraordinary youthful bloke? In the, in the bottom right-hand corner. And where did he possibly get that fabulous suede jacket with the little leather bits yeah. around the collar? Yeah. And I thought he looked sinfully young at the time. And if you told me at the time that 52 years later, I would be sitting here alongside that gentleman, and he is, if anything, looking even younger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'll agree. And he's here to talk about his fabulous book, Let the Good Times Roll, about his time in the small faces, the faces, and the who, and lots of other related activities. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we can finally use the word legend. Would you please welcome Kenny Jones. So, Kenny, delightful to see you. Have you got that album, the no, first Small Faces no, track? I lent that jacket to Mac, and I never saw it again. Oh, right. So, you, 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 do you, you keep, keep an inventory of all the, all the items of clothing? I know. <laughs> Everyone, there's a story with every item of clothing, I'm sure. Absolutely. So let's, let's, let's talk about the book. Why the book? Why now? Is this something you've tried to do in the past and yeah, never... Uh, well, I was asked to write a book mainly from journalists doing interviews over the years, but it was when, when I was around about 30, 35, and I, th I got quite excited. I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll write a book. And then I started to make little notes and things like that. And then I got the horrors. I thought, hang on a minute. It's an autobiography. I haven't even lived. I'm not even halfway through my life. You know, 
So I thought, so I parked it, put it to one side, and le- left it. You know, it was only recently when I got cancer for the second time I realised that, and I was approaching seventy. I thought, well, you know what? I better write a book yeah. just like, before I pop off. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's a little bit of a kind of accounting going on there. You know, yeah. you thought I'd reached that point in life. Yeah. Well, as Roger says, Roger Daughtry said said to me recently, he said, "Of course, Kenny. You know, we're all in the drop zone now." I went, "Oh, right." <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to drop off. It makes you write a bit faster, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder what you meant by that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you glad to have written it now? I mean, I know it's difficult. Well, to I feel more th- comfortable about writing it now. Yeah. Yeah, you feel more comfortable about bit, your life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I didn't realise at the time I could have written a book then because I lived such a lot, a lot of life very quickly, very early. You know. But uh, no, no, I had to live a bit more. Right. Now, do you? I have to know this because there's been. You know, so many musicians of your of your generation who've written books. Mm. Have you gone and read them prior to reading it? No, writing, no, writing I, your I, own? no. The only books I've read in my life is Pinocchio <laughs> 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 and, and The Moon's the Balloon by David Niven. Incidentally, the audio version of that is fantastic because he's an he's an actor as well, and it's great. You know, so you haven't even read it; you've listened to it. <laughs> no, no, I read the book and then I listened to it. Oh, right, right, no, right. I did it. I did. I know. It took me forever because I yeah. can't read very fast. Yeah. So you haven't read Keith Richards' book or Peter? No, I don't need to read it. I know. I just want to look at him. And tells me everything. Right. right. <laughs> That's what all them lines are for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we, were, we were going to start by talking about where you, you, you came from, which is Havering Street, I think, at the East End. We've actually managed Richard's to find book. a picture there. Of, that's, of, yeah, my house is down there somewhere. There, yeah, that's right. Slightly like more cars. It, it looks like it's one way, but it's not one way. I can't, and it looks a very narrow street. It's twice as wide as that. <laughs> so where is this, and, uh, and, where, and when were you that's born? That's just off Commercial Road. Commercial Road's behind that big, taller block of flats here, and that's where a bomb hit. That, that was a bomb site before, when I was growing up as a kid. Then they built these flats up there. And this side, this side, where the cars are facing, is Cable Street. Cable Street was a really rough uh, street. Which is where you say in the book that you can buy uh, bread and dripping for a farthing. Absolutely. It was fantastic, it was, yeah. This woman used to get a great big loaf. It was started out about that <laughs> big. She kept it under her arm like that and just say, bread and dripping, please. And then she'd just get the big dripping, beef dripping. Wipe it over the top and then saw it off like that. <laughs> and go to a big doorstep. It's fantastic. They weren't wor- worried about childhood obesity in those days, were they, at all? No, no health and safety or whatever. No. <laughs> so what year were you born? 1948. Right, OK. So you, uh, you, it, it, when we get to the get the small faces, it's quite interesting that, that there, was a, there were definite age differences between you, weren't there? Well, not... I think Steve, there's about eight, I mean, between Steve Matt and myself, we're, there's about eight months or something like that, I can't remember. But um, Ronnie, I think, was about two years older than me, Ronnie Lane. Uh, Mac was three, I think, years older than me. So those are quite yeah. significant differences, oh, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Particularly at, at, at I've always age. been the baby of the band. I right. still am. Right, right. <laughs> so can I, I ask think, about you? I your... think I might be the oldest member of my band. <laughs> so, can I ask about your dad? Because you're, you're kind of vague about him in the, in the book. You say that your cousin Billy, I think, uh, worked for the Craze yeah. and spent a lot of time inside. He did. But your dad, you say, he miraculously turned up with this wonderful collection of cars. You're never quite sure where he got the money from to buy these cars. I never asked. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, he used to come back from work on a Friday and he's just slightly merry, like it runs in the family now. Um, <laughs> and he'd just get in the kitchen and just merrily throw all his 
money up in the air. And it was like confetti, but huge, huge notes in those days, like a pound or ten bob was like, whatever, that big, you know, <laughs> huge. Yeah. And what, what was your... Money's got smaller, I don't know if you noticed that, in every single way. It's not worth as much as it used to be. Very true. So what was your mother like? Lovely. She was lovely. She was very, a very good-looking woman, very, like, you know, uh, just, a, just a typical 50s kind of style woman, you know. She was a very good dresser, you know. Right. And she was very ill most of her life, you know. And so brothers and sisters? None. None? Right. right. Uh, so I'm an only child. I'm unique. <laughs> you get spoiled. Yes, but only with love and affection and that sort of thing. And, uh, of course, if I share it loud enough, I'll get what I want, yeah. <laughs> that sort right, of thing. Right, right. Never particularly distinguished at school? No, I never went to school. I, I really didn't. I mean, I, I did, but it was just a pain in the ass, really. <laughs> just a distraction from what, I'm really, what I was really looking for, and I never knew what I was looking for anyway. So I just... Uh, a maths teacher... I got along with a maths teacher once, and he, he actually taught me how to do maths... And I thought, great, I can do something. And then they sacked him or something like that. He just left the school. That was the end of my education. And all my mates went to another school. So I used to bunk out of school and go when everyone else went to their classrooms, you know, uh, you know after assembly or whatever, I would uh, go out straight out the door, uh, straight across the street, into, and go to there's a, a school called Dempsey Street School. And th that was just across the road. So all my mates were going there, so I went there. And I sat in the best... Uh, Lessons of all time, you know, like woodwork, so you just woodwork metalwork, and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, so I just was sat in there, and I, I got a report from there as well. Which, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I, I did, yeah, yeah. I, I, it was a good report. It was a great report. Uh, my report from uh, my school in Cable Street was: uh, Who is he? Does he actually exist? Does he actually go to this school? You know, that's what I got on my report. That's brilliant. So when did the drums turn up at one point? And you are obsessed with Tony, Tony Meehan, I think it is, from The Shadows and Brian it's, Bennett. It's, yeah, well, yeah, because they were one of the first records I bought. So, And uh, Buddy Rich, obviously, in those days as well. Um, and, uh, of course, when I had The Shadows record, so I listened intensely about to exactly what they were doing. They were, they were mainly jazz drama, jazz tour. So I kind of learned a lot from that. And the, and the record I used to play along to a lot in those days, which was my, only, my dad's only 78 record of 12 Street Rag, which is basically a jazz riff, you know. And oh, so, a picture yeah. of it, yeah. It's oh. the cheap music. There. I thought it was so That's easy, because you talk about Edmundo Ross, kind of Latin American music. Great band. Blues, Wonderful band. Blues, Howling Wolf there, and there's, yeah. um, you know, um, yeah. uh, the 12th Street yeah. Rag, and, 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 and talk about Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts, how they swung as drummers, because they well, listened to all that jazz. It don't mean a thing if it has angled that swing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I know there, there are, there's a difference between drummers. Some, some drummers who come along later tend to just go up and down like that and just... Sort of hit it like uh, sort of, yeah, you know, that sort of thing, rather. Yeah. Like, like, that's different ways of playing rock beats and stuff like that. So you've got. You're all fed up with that one, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I see, I feel naked. There's a bit where you talk kit. about the sort of what you learned about drumming. There's a brilliant bit where you say the, the drummer's got to know their position. They can't be overcomplicated. They've got to drive well, the song. Well, Sal Jackson has said that, and I agree with him 100% because basically, you know, you can't just be a show off in there and you just overtake the band. You're there for a reason. You're there to keep time and keep control of the feel and make it move and, you know, just... 
So what was your impression of Keith Moon, who we'll talk about later in more detail, but I'm talking about somebody here who was basically a lead drummer, wasn't Nuts. it? <laughs> Nuts. He was, he was a great guy, fantastic guy, good friend. And, uh, but the way just, he drummed was it's just, just bonkers. You know? Yeah, no, the way, yeah, no, everyone was sort of scratching their going, is he going to come back in time? Is he going to, you know, what's going to happen? And sure enough, he'd come back in. Don't know where he'd been, but there you go. So you formed the Outcasts. Uh, when you were about, what, 14? Would you been 14 when you were in the Outcast? Yeah, me and Ronnie, that's when we first met. We yeah. formed a band. Obviously, we learned how to play. Our, Ronnie was learning to play his, his guitar, and uh, I was learning to play the drums, and we formed our band, and that's it, which is great. And that was a, that was a, a, a mod thing? I think our, soul our, and... our keyboard player, was, we, na- we, na- we nicknamed him Ben Chimes. <laughs> His name was... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was that was uh, that was a mod thing, wasn't it? As well, yeah, I mean, you were you know you were buying a lot of mod clothes at uh, was it Silverman's? Well, it's kind of it's around the mod area. Yeah, I think if you look closely at my what I'm wearing, it was a grey Caravelle jumper, which right? Was a mod jumper, right? From so, that shop. So, what kind of stuff were you playing in this group? What what was the material? I think mostly Chuck Berry, funny enough. Right. Yeah, it was all that sort of thing, and all uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and. The good rock and roll stuff. So it was easy for Chuck Berry. It was easy to play because for Ronnie, because he was playing lead guitar there, and he's like, it's just like doing a nice rock and roll beat, you know, Chuck Berry rhythm. So that's all he could play. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So you were just feeling your way at the time. You were just, yeah, you know, I was just joining in. Right, right. Now, didn't they try and fire you? Yeah. <laughs> what for? Outside the British Prince pub, they said they, re- they reckon I wasn't getting any better. And I thought, oh, I don't know about this. Uh, we're not getting any better. So uh, it's a lot of red rag to a ball for me. So I ended up going, right, I'll show you. So I ended up overtaking everyone, which is great. So I just non-stop practicing again. I think the beer was going to my head because I was only a little boy drinking. So how old were you at the time in this group? This, I was... I'm not sure if I was 14, just turned 15, something like that. Yeah. Right, right. Mm. So 14, Ronnie... I was still at school then. Oh, right, Ronnie, all of 18 months older, yeah. takes you aside and says, I don't think you're going to make it, son. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. So once we held him up against the wall and, <laughs> and put a few things straight, he changed his mind very quickly. No, so we were, we were fine. Yeah. But you weren't, you weren't kind of, uh, you didn't, you know, go home upset or anything like that. You just were determined to... No, I, I, was, de- no, I wasn't upset. I, I de- was determined to actually get better. Right. Which, right. I, to be honest, I don't agree with them anyway. Right. To this day, I was, I was all right. I think they, they introduced me to a song that was probably a bit too ahead of my time, really. Right. And theirs. So you can still remember. You, you, you... I remember the incident. I don't remember the song. Right. right, right, right. So, but you, you, you were practising and you were still living at home. Mm. So you were living in those... You know, terraced houses, small houses. Yeah. What was it like having a drum kit in a place like that? Presumably all your neighbours were immediately aware well, that you had a drum <laughs> kit. I was the alarm clock to the street. I used to wake everyone up at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. As soon as I was awake, I was playing away before I went to school. And so I got up a lot earlier than I normally would just to practice. And I, You couldn't get me off it. I was addicted. And then I'd go to uh, school and then I'd come back at lunchtime and play all the way through lunch break. And then I'd do the same, you know, four o'clock or so, up past three, come back and play all the way through to someone that had to drag me off, you know, until about 7.30, that sort of thing. And then I, um, I kept doing it every day, so the rest of the street was really not very happy with me. 
but they they were great. Once I once I got a first hit record in the charts, and stuff, well, <laughs> they changed the tune. They were also proud. proud of you. Yeah. But at the time, you weren't you weren't uh, do, working outside of that local area, really. You were just it was just local, wasn't it? It was just local. Yeah, we um, um, yeah, it's local pubs. Uh, we, we, uh, that, the, where we, were, we got a residency in a pub called the British Prince. That's where I met Ronnie Lane. So that's where they fired me. Right, <laughs> right. And, so, uh, and what was the crowd like there? What was the, you know... Oh, was... there were a great bunch of guys. There was a little jazz band that was playing, and I used to sit in front of the drummer and get tips and watch him, and, and, that's, and, I, and I, I, I was trying to look I was, as if I was old enough to drink, sitting there right opposite him. It's like as close as I am to you, you know. And I'd sit there going like that and watch him. And every time he... He, he was a singing drummer, and he had a Reslo mic. Remember a Reslo mic? No, you don't, do you? I don't know. Right, no, what do they look like then? Let's know my little. Yeah. <laughs> this is round, they're square, you know. All right, and, okay. And old ones. And then they, he had the microphone that came up through, through his seat and, and he'd play drums around like, like that. Oh, right, oh, that really? kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, so, and, he, and I used to sit in front of him just watching him. Okay, and he'd, he'd go, and he could blink, you know, all the time. <laughs> then he'd go, like, uh, I thought, okay. And I, and I didn't realise, so he came up. And they break to me, and he said, "You're taking the fucking piss out of me." <laughs> and I said, well, "What do you mean?" I said, he said, "You keep blinking at me." I said, "No, I don't." I said, "Oh, I know why. You, because when you play, you you play like that, and you go like that." And he went, "No, I don't." <laughs> <laughs> so, that's that's how I met him, and that's how we got along like house on fire after that. And I went there every week watching him, and then he took me under his wing a little bit and uh, just uh, showed me a couple of little bits and bobs, and then. Uh, one week I was there, and he said, uh, right, we've got a young drummer going to get up now and play uh, get special guests. And I thought, yeah, I can watch another drummer. I wonder who that is, you know. And he introduced me, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> so I just got, got up on this drum kit and uh, just nervous, really, really scared. And the, I looked up like that, and they were the three other guys that were in the, in the band looked like giants. I mean, incredible, incredibly tall. And because I, I was sitting down, I go, Oh, fuck. And then they 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 counted the song, which was one, two, one, two, three, four, that sort of thing. And then it sounded to me as if it was wow, because <laughs> everything was in slow motion, yeah. you know. And then suddenly I found myself playing, and, I, and I, that was it. I was in heaven playing. And I, but you I, say in the book that was a real life-changing moment because you think was, this yeah. is this is precisely what I want to do. Exactly, because it's the first time I ever played drums with someone other than the record player, you know. So it's great. So what what happened with so Ronnie introduced you to Steve Marriott, I think, uh, at uh, quite soon after. Well, Ronnie, Ronnie and I formed formed the Outcasters, you know, and then uh, yeah. he said to me, "I don't really want to play guitar anymore, and uh, I want to play bass." I said, "Okay, great. Let's go up to the shop where, by chance, by coincidence, I bought my first drum kit, and he bought his first bass. And he, he Ronnie lived quite near that shop, you know, and." Um, so we went into the shop and uh, on a Saturday morning, and this young cocky kid comes up and goes, uh, what you, how, "How can I help you?" And I say, "He wants to buy a bass." Okay, try this one. Whatever. And I just saw this drum kit while they were playing basses and guitars. Whatever. Uh, I just sat behind the drum kit and just started to play. And when when I started to play, uh, Ronnie started to play along with me on the bass, and and then the this guy picked up a guitar. <laughs> 
Oh, you know it is. Uh, uh, picked up a guitar, started to play it as well, and that was Steve Marriott. He was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, it's literally a scene straight out of a movie. Isn't I know. It? <laughs> he, he was. He was. Uh, set, he was just doing a Saturday morning job for Pocket Money. And what was he like? Because he, he, you know, he'd been the artful dodger. He'd been a child actor, hadn't he? He'd been on stage. I'd in the seen West him End. on. I'd seen him on TV, and I couldn't figure out where I'd seen him before. And, uh, it was only when the van came round to pick me up and my drum kit. And he pops out of the back as well, like that, and thought, that's it, I've seen you with Peter Sellers in that film. Where Peter Sellers was playing, the, I can't remember the name of the film now. But do you know the name? Wait, John. Yeah, I John? Can't remember, actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can you find out? <laughs> <laughs> Kenny is asking the, uh, the head of the Kenny Jones fan yeah. club, yeah, yeah. who's in the audience <laughs> tonight, yeah. who, as he said earlier, knows far more about Kenny Jones than Kenny Jones well, does. So. That's John Fisher. <laughs> he helped me with the book because it, it was like. Uh, um, Great, if, I couldn't remember exactly where I was in 1967 or, or, or anywhere. So, John, do you know where I was on that day? Yes, yes, you, you did this gig that day. Okay. Fantastic. So, Fantastic. So, anyway, you, you, you were aware that you'd seen him before. Now, he was, he, he was very confident, was he, compared to well, the rest of you? Well, don't forget, he was a child actor. He went to Talia Conte School and he'd done a couple of films and that's... Uh, and so he was... Yes, he was... Fairly confident, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Too confident. <laughs> no, he was great. Was he? He was clear. He was the most confident. He was of an all awful of you. dodger. He, 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 his natural instinct was to be just like Oliver, you know. And so he was Oliver, you know. He started, and he taught us all to. I mean, we, we all became little artful dodgers. I mean, that's what we should have called the band, the Dodgers. <laughs> and what was Ronnie like at this time? Ronnie, Ronnie was always very. Like Ronnie, he's very sort of, oh, okay, he's very sort of relaxed about everything, stay calm, oh, you can't do anything about it, let's just go with the flow, that sort of thing. Ronnie was, and then Steve was wired, you know. Right, yeah, right. And I just sat there joining in. <laughs> right, right. So was it the tension between the two of them that kind of no, drove I, the band? To be honest, there was no tension between any of us in the small faces. We just had this special gift of playing with each other. It was, and I call it just an unconscious telepathic sort of thing that happened. So we just, we just played together and it worked. So we never questioned it, we just, you know, I mean, the, the, the rest of the guys never told me what to play on every track we recorded and I never told them what to do. You know, we'd speak and talk, discuss things, but in the main, you know, uh, they uh, just let me do what I wanted to. But I was always looking for what to play and brought Phil's to play in a song, once I knew the song, and then I... Because I kept trying to play all the way through while they are tuning up or learning something, and I got my, my nickname was Shut Up Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was... Uh, it's only, the only, they only tweaked it afterwards. I said, I, I, got, I got the ump with them, I said, no, I'm trying to find something to play on this bloody song. I'm trying, I don't want to do the same thing twice. And then, this, then they never questioned me again. That's it. So, well, sorry, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about. It, 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 we were just talking about before we started about somebody who sadly died the other day, Pete Stringfellow. Oh, Peter, yeah, no, that was sad. Who had really a was. part in your, your well, career? Well, we decided to turn professional <laughs> and uh, we got into Jimmy Winston's uh, brother's van and we got Jimmy in the band because his brother had a van. So, <laughs> so, so that took care of that one. So, anyway, we were on our way up to north to. Um, to generally sort of knock on everyone's door and just turn professional and, and play. And so, of course, the van broke down in Nutsford, which are all places, and so, 
So we spent like literally like three or four days in Knutsford, and uh, the only place we could sleep was on top of the amplifiers in the van. And it, there was a part that Jimmy Winston had to go back to London and get whatever it was. And so we, none of us had any money, and we were starving. So I, I think we all clubbed together. I think we had we raised. I think we raised thruppence. <laughs> well, you could buy a lot of bread and dripping think, for that. I think we had a, <laughs> something like a, a penny each or something like that or whatever. So I, and I thought, oh, I've got to find something to eat, you know. Don't forget, it was a lot cheaper to buy stuff in those days. <laughs> and I found out where the village was, so I walked about three or four miles to the village and I get to this bakery. It's full of cakes. It was wonderful. And I, saw, I thought, what can I buy? I want to buy the biggest cake. I saw this rock cake. You remember with all little bits of sugar all over them? They were great, great cakes. And it was huge. And I thought, great, that'll do. We can carve that up and have that for dinner. <laughs> 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 and I get there, and I, I, just, I looked at it, and I said, I said to the lady, I like that rock cake, please. She said, fourpence. <laughs> <laughs> can I have three quarters of it, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, oh, 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 it's just my bloody luck, you know, four points. I said, can you cut a bit off? I said, just, uh, she said, I've, I said, I've only got four points. Anyway, she, uh, she felt sorry for me and gave me the cake. So I walked home. How, well, when I say home, I went back to the garage with this four miles, look at, holding this cake, <laughs> dying to have a bite out. <laughs> and I couldn't. I just had to keep my call and get there and just, and we split it up. And that's it. We had a meal. LAUGHTER uh, so Pete Stringfellow, was that on that okay. tour? Yeah, that's, uh, it was at the, around about the same time. Right. And we ran out of money, uh, everything, so we knocked on... We found that we were at Sheffield, we found ourselves in Sheffield, and we asked a few locals, is there any clubs to play in around here? Oh, yeah, there's a, a, we've got um, the, a club called the Mojo. So I said, OK, where's that? It's always through Market Square. OK, well, where's Market Square? <laughs> right. you know, so... And that became a sort of a band thing every time you ask for directions. You know, that's a funny thing, anyway. Um, so we, um, we get to uh, the Mojo Club, knocked on the door, and this guy opened it up, of course it was Peter Stringfellow, and he said, we said to him, uh, we'll play for nothing, we're starving, we just want to shower, we just want to just do something, but we'll play for nothing. He said, come in, lads, I'll, I'll see you all right. And he just took us under, under his wing. Um, so we played that evening, and they brought the house down a little bit, they loved us, and that was that. Yeah, but it made a real difference to your confidence, didn't it? You said in the book that this was, a, again, a major kind of turning point. Oh, this yeah. guy believing in you. Yeah, that's right. It was someone believed in us, you know. One of the things I just, I'd forgotten about at that time was that when Don Arden became your manager, about whom we shall talk in a bit more detail uh, yeah. later, I think, yeah. um, uh, he, you know, he directed everything, really. He, he, he gave you money to, to, to dress a certain way. Well, he told you what the look of the band should be. He told you what material you should record. He, he, you know, he never, he never, no, he never did that. He never told us what to wear or how to create songs or write songs or whatever. He was only concerned that we came up with a hit. No, that's before you wrote your own songs. He gave you songs to play, didn't he? No, yeah, well, he's introduced us to Ian Samuel. Incidentally, it was, who was a member of The Shadows. So right. I was elated with yeah. the name. Um, he was a songwriter, and uh, they wrote this song called What's You Gonna Do About It? And so we, we went in and recorded that, and that was our first hit. So. Can you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? Yeah, I was driving my... Was I driving? No, I was in a car, anyway. And I heard it on the radio, and I could not believe... 
that was my drum. I was, I was listening to my drummers. So did everyone else in the band. I, I was just, I could hear my drumming going, yeah, great. So it's unbelievable. So I thought, you must be doing something, right? So how old were you then? I think I, I, think I, was, I was 15... I just or just turned sixteen. It's Mate. astonishing because you said you were fourteen when you were working in a pickling factory, and oh, you yeah. were fifteen when you had a hit yeah, record. Yeah, it was all very. It's astonishing how fast things yeah. move. Yeah, very quick. Yeah, I mean, I left school and I don't know how many years did you say later? Fifty odd years later, yeah. I just, you know, I should still be at school, really. <laughs> so, did you have any? Did you have any proper jobs before becoming a musician? I I had uh, I worked in the pickle factory to pay for my drum kit. Um, <laughs> And I used to get up at six in the morning, no, well, four in the morning, to meet the driver and go down the docks and, and load all these barrels of pickles up, so, which we did, and uh, got back to the, uh, took all the barrels back to this little factory, speciality foods it was called, that's right, and um, it was we t- took the barrels off the the truck, and it, I think it's a guy called Felix, a Polish guy, who just took the lids off the barrels and then. I'm not kidding, there was about an inch or thick with flies on the top of every barrel he opened. So, and he just go like that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they were paying him, it wasn't and enough. Then he, then he would proceed later on to put them all in, in he'd make pick a lily. So, and I thought, I'm not eating pick a, pick a lily ever again. <laughs> so, so, well, I like it now, but... Sod the flies. So you never really had proper jobs. You you, you did. No, well, I, no. Things. Ronnie Lane. Uh, uh, shortly after I met him, he got and this Stephen Ronnie and I were to, uh, uh, sort of met each other, and hanging out together, learning to play with each other. Uh, but Ronnie had a shop, uh, a job in because uh, he was a bit older than me, as you say. He had a job in Selmers making amplifiers. But his job was not making them. His job was to test them out in a little soundproof room. So, half the size of this. So you sit there on top of the amps and just test every every amp out that came. And so he was practicing all the bloody time, you know. So and he got me a job in in there, and I was on the assembly line. And my job was to put in reverb units into the assembly into the into the amplifiers. And so I got fed up with just being on the assembly line and shellac around nuts, uh, and. Uh, so I decided, had all these empty cases of amplifiers stacked in this warehouse, you know, right on top of each other. So we'd built a little um, hideaway. There's a hole in the wall. We cut a hole in the wall behind this, and behind the wall was this stack of amplifiers. So we moved a few amplifiers out of the way, and we had a little hiding place in there to actually go and have a smoke or whatever. Um, so I used to. Uh, there's a, another Polish guy. I can't remember his name now. He was um, he was the foreman of the of the assembly line. So I used to, I used to, I, I just, I used to send him up like you won't believe, and I would pretend to, you know, I'd just throw the amp on the floor or the, the reverb unit, and, and he'd go, "You can't do that, uh, not enough shellac." So whatever. So and then I, so in the end, I used to run around the corner, make sure he'd see me, and I'd go into Ronnie's room, you know, I'd say, "This way, you come back here, you've got to go, go on the assembly line, you've got to come back." So I'd run into Ronnie's room, and Ronnie would move the amp, and I'd go through the little hole in the wall. So come in. And I swear to God, I promise you, Ronnie told me after, he said, he came in here, he even looked in my coat pockets for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Don Hardman, we just mentioned earlier, was a, was a fearsome character, wasn't he? Well, he was, he was great. He was uh, he, he, he's great at getting 
you on telly, uh, in the papers and doing all that sort of stuff, you know. And he, he introduced us to, uh, like I said, to Ian Samuel and Mort Schumann, who wrote, that, wrote the song. And we recorded that, that song in IBC in Portland Place. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of, we made a lot of records in there. And so, yeah. That's where Glyn Johns was the engineer that day. Yeah, but you're very, you're very uh, kind about it because I mean I don't think he got to the stage of his life. Well, where he was hanging people out of the window by their ankles as he did in the seventies. Well, when you when you stand back from it and you just you know at, at the time we were upset and very angry that we we'd asked him. Well, we never asked him to look after our money. He offered <laughs> to look after our money. <laughs> so, and he said, right, "Okay, boys, you're all busy." He said, look, "Don't worry about that," because we weren't. The last thing we wanted to talk about was complications like business and stuff like that. Yeah. Counts? Yeah, it was Sorry. a 1.5% royalty and £20 cash each a week. That's, yeah. that's so, right. Yeah. So, and you were so, going, great! Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's fine by me. But, but uh, when, it, when, it, when you didn't get much money coming back... Well, we, we thought... Because we thought Don was looking after our money. And he certainly did. He looked really after it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, but in between all that, park that to one side... And then just look at what he achieved for us. And I mean, he was a great manager. He did, he did us proud, really. But at the time, you know, he should have looked after our money properly. Right, right. I was very taken by the bit in the book where I think you go for a meeting with him at his office in Carnaby Street, probably, yeah. early on. And he makes you some kind of offer. And you can't bear to go all the way home and think about it. That's you right. go and stand in the street outside. Yeah, no, he said... He said, I can, offer you, I can offer you a wage, you can all have a wage, or a royalty. And we went, can we have a group meeting? Sorry, goodbye. So we went outside, and so, so we all had a little chat, and we went, no, we want fucking both, don't we? We'll have both. So we went back and said, we want both. So <laughs> and said, OK, fine, you, have a, you can have a wage and a royalty, which is, we didn't know what the royalty was at the time. But, <laughs> right, right. So that's how we got started, really. And there's another meeting where you brought your parents along. Well, he, he's, when we started to ask questions about where's the money, Tom, and he'd say, well, you've spent it all. Well, how can we spend it all? You haven't, we haven't had it. You've, you're looking after it. He said, no, you've got accounts in all the shops. I said, I said well, you've got the accounts for us. You know. He said, yeah, but you, know, you need it to look good. He said, uh, but um, you know, you're going, you've, spent, you've spent it all. All on clothes and anything, whatever. I've got your house in Pimlico, which we, re- we rented. Um, 22 Westmoreland Terrace. Right. We'll never forget it. Honor Blackman was our, was our next-door neighbour. She was great. And I really, I really fancied her. All of us fancied her. Every yeah. time she'd come out, we'd just go, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I found out she was just the same age as my mum. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> but she still looked great. Yeah. So the small faces have a, have a string of hits, pretty much. Do you know what amazes me? Go on. I... To this day, when I sit, hear all the songs and the albums we did, I'm amazed how many songs we, we recorded in the short space of time we were there. I think we were only together for about four and a half years. Yeah, so it's quite weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think... I get the impression that you, sometimes you, you, the, the small faces themselves kind of underestimated what the small faces achieved, that you kind of wished well, that yeah. you'd been a bit more cred... Well, at the time, we were all scratching our heads going, I don't know what people see in us, really. You know, so, so, yeah. And we spent a long time in the studio. Uh, whenever we weren't gigging, we, we'd be in the studio. 
which is the love it now, just creating, you know. Right, right, right. But did you feel frustrated that you were, you know, you were kind of teenage scream sensations rather than being like well, Led Zeppelin? Yeah, well, all the time, so forget all this throughout this time when we were at Don Arden, we were still learning how to how to perform and and discovering our instruments and learning how to play. So, but we we, we did it really quickly, and we um, we we could really play. All of us were good players. And all we wanted to be recognised for was, was our ability to actually do something properly. So we wanted to be known as musicians and not really sort of bonnet wonder pop songs, you know. But there seems to be two separate bits. There's the, the sort of the wonderful pop singles and then there's the psychedelic bit when you're yeah. managed by Andrew Oldham and he encourages you to kind of, you know, to, to free up yeah. and do uh, Here Come the Nice and, uh, and you know, uh, Ichiku Park and Lazy yeah. Sunday. Well, he, us, he never questioned us... He wasn't looking for a hit. He was secretly, but um, but Don was always looking for that sort of commercial record. And Andrew just got us in. He said, "It's all the studio time he wants." So he used to live in every studio around London. And when the Olympic Studios opened, we lived in Olympic Studios. That was it. And we recorded in Barnes a lot of great songs. But Lazy Sunday, Ichiku Park, yeah. Dave and I were talking about this earlier. These are some of the greatest records I think we've ever heard in our lives. You know, can, can you remember anything about the making of those records? Um, yeah, the yeah I, remember, I remember making them. I remember making the sort of Lazy Sunday, thinking, yeah, we only did it for a laugh, you know, and just park, you know, put it to one side, and that was that. And for, for, forgot about it and, put, and got along on doing um, other things, you know, like a Tin Soldier, maybe, you know. And... Um, we were on tour in Germany, a quite a long tour. We were away for about five weeks or something, and then uh, uh, we, one of us got Melody Maker and started looking through the charts, and there we, there we were. Lazy Sunday by the Small Faces, it's a hit. So we never even gave anyone, we didn't even know, know we had a, a record out. So Andrew Oldham had gone into the studio, into Olympic Studios, put the tapes on it and chose that one and put it out. So it was another now in our coffin, the teeny bobber stuff, you know. We couldn't get away from that teeny bobber image, screaming girls and you name it. See, I think of that as a psychedelic classic. Yeah, I, think, I don't really see yeah, that. No, that, that song haunts me because <laughs> my band, when we formed the, the Jones Gang, uh, Rick Wills, who was a bass player with Foreigner, and, that, and went on to be that, and then he joined us, and, and um, he, he loved that song. So he just wanted to play it. So we had to do that song, and it drove me nuts, I tell you. So it's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. It's, it's a great song, but I'd rather play something else. <laughs> yeah. So do you feel that the small faces, because they're revered, you know, you can't open a copy of Mojo without a big piece about the small faces, you know, but you, you feel that you just never quite achieved what you set out to achieve? Well, I think we just... That we, we love bands like Zoot Money and Eric Clapton and, uh, you know, Jimmy Page and, you know, Jimmy... Uh, I was when we were recording in, in IBC, and I was doing. Then I started to do sessions. I did a lot of sessions with Jimmy, and he did, you know, and vice versa. So we, we all knew each other. We were interacting. One minute I'd be playing in the Small Faces, and then I'd be playing with Jimmy Page in a session somewhere. And then next minute Jimmy would be playing with us in IBC, just because we're all mates. So, yeah, it's kind of weird. What were you saying? What was the question? The question was whether or not you, you felt that you, you, you never achieved what you set out to achieve, you know. Well, Everybody thinks of the small faces as being phenomenal. Uh, no, I don't think we were looking for... We didn't know what we wanted to achieve. We just wanted to be known for our ability 
in the music industry as players, not really just teeny bob five minute wonders, you know, uh, just always looking for their commercial record. So that's probably what inspired us to, to write other things and get away from it, like Ogden Snack on Flake. You write very uh, well in the book about when you did your first session as a, as a session man. Yeah, yeah. You know that you you were you were worried, weren't you? Really? I was I was shit scared to be honest. Yeah, because <laughs> I thought, okay, I'm going to do a session. Uh, my my uh, father-in-law at the time was Tony Osborne, a big band leader from the from the fifties, early fifties, and stuff. And he he's quite, he was you know sought after guy for. And so he said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll explain I'd like to do a session. And he said, I'll, I'll come on my session and I'll, and I'll show you how to do it. I said, but I don't read music. And he said, well, come round my flat, because he divorced his wife, and I'll show you how to read music. I said, but the session's tomorrow. So <laughs> he said, don't worry, just, I'll be there with him. He's got the baton and all that. I'll guide you through it. He said, this is how you... This is a bar, right? And there's four beats to a bar. And these little circles here are little tacits and little accents. And this one, that line there is your, is your bass drum. And that line there is your snare drum. And I said, OK, so that's sending me boss eyed already. So, and he told me I had this, to do all this literally the night before. And so I'm playing away. Oh, I turned up at the studios. It, it was Trident Studios. It just opened in Wardour Street. And uh, the. Sorry, I've lost a thread now. Uh, no, doing your session. You get a Trident yeah. Studios. Trident Studios, yeah. Still lost a thread. <laughs> <laughs> so, you turn up... Yeah, no, no, what happened was... The whole band... It's a big... But the, the band was in there before us. I mean, when I say us, it was me. The rhythm section was myself, Herbie Flowers and Big Jim Sullivan on guitar. So they were quite, they were so quite that, good. And I, I was, I, of course, I knew these guys, and I thought, and they were great. They, they were, we were like a little group underneath this. The control room was above us, so we had a little ceiling like that. And so we were in this little hole in the wall. And uh, the, the orchestra, we looked down the room, the orchestra was there. The string section were up that end, the brass were over that side, and the other ones were this side, the cellos were over here. And, and none of them were talking to each other. There was, they wouldn't, they just were waiting for, looking at the music and stuff. And so, Big, Big Jim Sullivan and Herbie were great. They just sat there, just made me feel at home. So I get my sheet music out. And Tony Osborne was up there on a big pl- plinth up there, just with his thing. Uh, and he's, right, okay, right, so, and he's, we're all in, so we're all in, so we're playing away. And then I'm, watching this piece of paper and I'm just going I'm playing away and so I said it sounds alright it seems okay and uh, we get to this bit where we go the, uh, we go fra, ba, 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 big accent big feels and that sort of thing and I went oh I stopped playing I went shit right and, and Tony said what did you what, what did you stop playing for I said well I can't believe all this band here did the same thing as me from this little piece of paper here. <laughs> so so that's my, that was the introduction to my first session. Then I, did, then I went on to do loads and loads and loads. Well, you did, you did, uh, did you did our, our, our Bright Eyes with our Art Garfunkel thing, but you also were on a Rolling Stones thing, which I, I never knew. It's only rock and roll, yeah. Yeah, well, tell us that story. Yeah. Well, that was by accident, really. That was just because uh, we... Uh, were, I lived on Rich uh, on on uh, Richmond Park was in the uh, there, and we all lived on different gates. I lived on Robin Hood Gate, 
Kingston Hill. Uh, Mac lived on Sheen Gate, and R Ronnie Wood lived on Richmond Gate. And of course, I don't know if you know, but the parks closes at eight o'clock at night. So I would always get a call, just as I was putting one foot into bed, you know, about 11 o'clock at night, probably even later. And I, of course, I had a couple of glasses of whatever. And uh, so I think, oh no, it's uh, Woody go, Kenny, we haven't got a drummer. <laughs> and I, like an idiot, let him have a, I gave him a drum kit. So it's set up in his studio. So there was already, there's no excuse, there's a drum kit there. So I had to nervously get in my car and then sort of leg it all the way around the outside of the park without getting nicked by anyone, you know, by the old wheel. So I get there, and it, I mean, it happened quite a lot, so I'd go there one night, and uh, you get downstairs in, in, in his basement where he built his studio, there would, there would be Bob Dylan one night, and then another night, a week later, I'd go around the same thing again. We haven't got a drummer. And, um, and there would be Eric Clapton, or it went on like that. Anyway, I got this call one night. Kenny, we haven't got a drummer. Okay, fine, I'll be there in a minute, as quick as I can. So I get, get around there, and just, just, just uh, Mick Jagger's in the, in the studio, just him playing away. So I just jumped behind the drum kit. Ronnie was um, not in the studio with us, we just left the two of us alone. And we were just bashing away. Um, Ronnie had just got, bought all this new equipment for his studio, all his outboard stuff like echo chambers and things that make you sound better, that sort of stuff. So, so Jagger and I were just playing away. By, the, by now it's two o'clock in the morning. And I, I, don't, I don't like staying up late. I just like to go to bed and wake up early. I've always been like that. So I'm going, fucking hell. So just, <laughs> so, uh, and Jagger, Jagger's just playing, playing around with this riff and, 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 and Mick said, Kenny, oh yeah, he said, play like that, play that. So I went, I said, no, I just play like that. <laughs> I said, anyway, it's late. I said, anyway, it's only rock and roll. And he said, well, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I could see, I could see, I could see what was going to happen. I see light bulbs in the eyes now. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. So we were just playing around, playing around with that riff, and that's how we did it, by accident. So we recorded. Woody came running in and said, I've listened to it. I've got, it's great. Just... Just put one down. So we put one down, right? And he came and said, right, so I'm going to put a guitar on. So he put a guitar on. So, and that was it. And I thought, OK, uh, good night, I'm going to bed. <laughs> so I went, I went back and literally I got a call saying, uh, it's, it's the, it's the um, uh, Stones' next single. I said, oh, that's good. So the demo worked then. So they went in and re-recorded it. No, you're on it. So I said, but I'm not supposed to be on it. I said, it's only a demo for, you know, for the Stones, you know, whatever. And so, no, I said, you've got to be serious. You can't be serious. And they said, yes, you're on it. And so it's you, Ronnie, Mick, and, and uh, that's it. I said, okay. So the th first thing I did was I called Charlie Watts. I said, Charlie, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to play on your record. <laughs> And he said, he said to me, he said, he said, it's all right, Kenny, he sounds like me anyway. He's <laughs> <laughs> so, so gracious, Charlie. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. And if you, if you look at the video for that, which I was looking at today, Charlie looks more bored than usual. <laughs> because not only is he miming, he's, he's miming thinking, to your part. Fucking hell, it's... 
fucking Kenny Jones. <laughs> yeah. Ogden, coming back, Ogden's Nut Gone Flake was mm. the kind of the small faces kind of masterpiece, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, have you got that record? Have you got that with its extraordinary circular cover? Did your did your I, copy survive? I, I, mine survived. Yes, it's uh, it's along with it's in the archives with the, with the, uh, with all the other albums. I don't get them out. I mean, vinyl's coming back, but I tell you what, you know, I've taken a lot, up a lot of room. All right. <laughs> so you've still kept everything? I've got everything, yeah. Oh, right. It's right. lovely it was Stanley Unwin turns up to record his fantastic part of it, and, and he says something to you, like, let's pop over to the pub and have a couple of oh, pints right. of Tilty Elbow. That's right, yeah, no. Which is <laughs> so great. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually call beer Tilty no, Elbow. No, it's, it's, no, it's great. I, I was doing a TV in Leeds or something like that, and uh, we both walked into the, the studio reception at the same time, and I said... Oh, Stanley, great. I haven't seen you for a few years. I said, I said you look great. He said, he said that's because I look fucking old then. So I said, oh. I said, all right. So he said, well, look, I'll, let's go and put the bags in the dressing rooms and we'll, we'll pop up the ro- road and have a couple of pints of Tilty Elbow. <laughs> so great. So I, I thought, fucking great name for a pint. <laughs> so the original person that you wanted to do the kind of narration part was, in fact, Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan, How yeah. Did you know that? Spike Milligan what wanted to there? do it, but he was... Uh, too busy, he was very sought after in those days, and he was very, very, very busy, so he couldn't do it. So um, then we, um, uh, I don't know whose idea it was, so I think it might have been Steve, so Stanley Elman, we lost Stanley Elman, so okay, Stanley Elman, we met Stanley Elman, and he made us laugh so much, it was incredible, just fell about. And uh, he wanted, then he spent time with each one of us, he wanted to know all our all our little sayings and what we did and what our personalities were like and that. And so that's how he got all the little sayings, you know. Do this deep, deep focus and oh, you're sitting comfortable, too square on your body. Yeah. <laughs> deep joy. <Yeah. laughs> joy, absolutely. So, but, but that was the kind of la- the last hurrah, the small faces, wasn't it, really? That was, it was all well, over at that we point. We didn't know at the time, no. We didn't know it was going to be our last hurrah. Uh, but he was, it was kind of... What with the, 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 the Ichiku Park being released and that sort of thing, and um, us, the, the teeny bopper screaming, it was screaming, oh no, that's Ichiku Park was later, sorry, not Ichiku Park, yeah, it was later. Um, the, was it later? Yeah, I can't remember. Ichiku Park was before, before. Ogden. Ogden. Yeah, 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 that's right, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Steve went off to... It was, it was just all the commercial records like My Mind's Eye and... You know, that sort of... It was lovely songs and whatever, but it was screaming girls everywhere. And in those days, yeah, our amps were... Marshall had only just came out with a bigger amp. You know, so... And they're, they're tiny now, when you think of them. And so PAs were not non-existent in those days. There's like a couple of little thin things on each side of the stage, you know. Mm. So the screams were louder than... They drowned everything. Yeah. drowned everything out. With, so no-one was listening to us, really. Yeah. Just screaming at us. I was fascinated by the, the fact when the, the group break up and Steve Merritt goes off and there's a lot of tension and forms humble pie and everything. And the faces came together because I think the Stones had, had lent your rehearsal room mm. and you, the three of you, were there playing and uh, yeah. Ronnie well, Wood gets involved. Well, when, 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 when the, when the um, small faces split and Steve left, it was a real blow to, uh, to the three of us who were left and just... And we decided we just wanted to be together and just, we were lost, totally lost. It's like losing a brother, you know, it's like, where's he gone? So, um, 
we decided to get together and uh, the Stones were very, very uh, generous and said, look, you know, we've got a little warehouse in Bermondsey Street in Bermondsey. Why don't you go, we've got a little soundproof room down there. You can play once a week down there or whenever you want. So we used to go down there all the time and play. We jamming away for a couple of weeks and still looking a bit lost. And then uh, uh, Ronnie Lane brought down his new neighbour, which was Ronnie Wood. And so Woody was, came in and uh, started to play along with us. And at that time, he was playing bass with the Jeff Beck band. Uh, so he was just learning. He didn't, he didn't want to... Well, it's a bit like what Ronnie Lane did. He did. The opposite of Ronnie Lane. He didn't want to play bass. He wanted to play guitar. So he, he joined in with us. And so he filled that little gap for a bit, you know. And then I, this went on for ages, us all jamming away. And I thought, what's it going to be like when we start to sing, you know? And... Uh, uh, then one week Ronnie brought down his best mate and that was Rod Stewart because he was a both of them were on a wage with a Jeff Beck band and so right and so I knew that uh, Rod could really sing but he came down and became one of the friends we became a friends of ours and sat there one of the lads and going like this all the time you know well let's Let's go up the pub. So, so we wait. We had a break, play for an hour or so, and then we go up the pub. Come back, play for an hour or so, and then go up the pub. This went on for ages. And then suddenly the vocals started to take a serious sort of turn. And so Ronnie Lane started to sing. I thought, yeah, great. Well, Ronnie's got a fantastic, wonderful voice, you know. And then Max started to sing, yeah, all right, yeah. And uh, Woody started to sing, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting there playing, listening to all this. I go, yeah, okay. There's no, there's nothing power. There's, there's no power there. After the, you, after you, 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 you can't hear that Marriott set of lungs he had, yeah. you know, the wonderful voice he had. There's something was missing, and I kept looking at Rod all the time, sitting on the amps, going, he's got a fucking great voice, you know. So when we went up the pub one week, I just took him around. I did an Adam Faith on him. Fancy a drink. So we went around the other bar and uh, I said to him, do you fancy joining the band? I said, because you're like one of the lads, you're with us all. And he said, he said yeah, that would be great. He said, do you think they'll let me? <laughs> That's exactly what he said. You can't make this up, I promise you. And he said, yeah, you think they'll let me? I said, yeah, of course they will. So I went back to... Alvin Lee was having a party that night. Uh, not a party, just drinks around his muse flat. So we all went around there. And I said to the guys there, I've asked Rod to join the band, thinking they'd go, yeah, great. You know, or what did he say, that sort of thing. Nothing like that. No, we don't want another prima donna in the band. We don't want another Steve Marriott walking out on us and all that. And I couldn't believe it, and I just dug my heels in. So I spent a couple of hours persuading everyone, and I won. So that was that. And so with, yeah. with the faces, you were, you were finally able to do what you'd not been able to do with the small faces, which was you could go to America... Because small faces yeah. never never played. Well, we actually we, we did actually go to America by accident on the way back from Australia. Right. <laughs> yeah. My first introduction to America was once again with the Who, which is you know we got our plane was diverted into San Francisco because we couldn't go to somewhere else. I don't know. And so a bus pulls up. We didn't go for immigration or customs or anything. The bus pulls up by, by the bottom of the steps. We get on that. We get on the on the bus. And the bus drives off and takes us out of the airport. So we're in America, into a holiday inn. So we're in a holiday inn, stay there. 
And, uh, you know, when you go, I, I was sort of fascinated. I hadn't seen an American hotel room at all. You know, and I saw this television on the wall hanging there. I thought, oh, that's unusual. And so I turned it on, managed to turn it on, and it's in colour. I went, oh, wow. Turn it on, colour. And then the first thing I saw, as this goes on the street, the first thing I saw was that guy, that famous shot where it was on the news where these, the Vietnamese guys getting his head blown oh. off. Yeah. They just shot him like that, and all this blood went, Phew. Well, uh, I thought, yeah, welcome to America. <laughs> so that was my introduction You're to America. Right, right. But yeah. we, that's how we did actually go there, but did nothing there. Right, right. But the, faces, the faces immediately, America was a big, big yeah. part of what yeah, you did. We, 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 went, we, we arrived in Canada, because uh, we had a gig in Canada. And then, uh, but because Mac had a drug bus, they wouldn't let him into America. So we had, to, we had to go and do the gig without him. Until <laughs> right, right. till the lawyers got him sorted out. And, uh, uh, yeah. Sorry. It always, we always get the impression, watching the faces, that drinking was a big part of what you did. No. <laughs> well, I remember interviewing John Peel once. Drinking Peele a lot. Was. Was. Yeah. Drinking a lot. John yeah, Peel told me that he, he, you did a session at Made Avail and he said, to, he said you were in the pub opposite and you were live on air. I think, yeah, and, and you just stumbled out of the pub and all ran in, and with twenty seconds to go, right. falling about all over the place, all knocking right. bottles of Newcastle yeah, Brown. I mean, John Peel was a nervous wreck, he was. Yeah, yeah. No. But the drinking sounded spectacular. It was. It tasted spectacular as yeah. well. Yeah. But brandy and me don't get along at all now. That's my drink in those days. We all drank that. But if I smell brandy now, I just I just pass out. You know. You also, I, I can't get over the fact that I see pictures of the faces and they're drinking bottles of blue nun. Yeah, Leaffrau yes. milk. That was, Warm Leaffrau milk. That was the first... Leaffrau milk. Yeah. 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 Um, we, we, um, that was in the very early days when we had no money, uh, but they had lots of cheap wine there. Right. They're trying to uh, uh, get rid of this horrible stuff called Leaffrau milk. <laughs> and you were, the, you were the place to get rid of it. Yeah, and there was another one. There's another wine called Lancers. Lancers one. Oh, right, Stone yes, Bowl. yes, yes. Yeah. When, you, when you're touring America, there's, there's a bit where the, um, you, you, you're met by police and the, and the um, a yeah. police escort, in fact. And you yeah. think it's to protect you from yeah, we think, admiring oh, fans. We, we've made it. They've sent a police escort for us. Uh, so they, they escort us and follow us all the way to the hotel. And then the sheriff sort of said, welcome to uh, Houston. Uh, I said, great. He said, no, don't leave the hotel. I've got, I've got a guard outside each one of your rooms, which he did, because he, he just didn't want us to uh, uh, cause any trouble. So it was to protect, yeah. It was to protect the... their residents. <laughs> <laughs> so your reputation was that fierce? No, no TVs went out the window that day. Yeah. Can you remember, we, Mark and I were talking about this earlier, can you remember playing the Wheelie Festival in 1971? John? <laughs> 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 well, you did. <laughs> I was there, you did. Oh, OK, we, we did. Yeah, because yeah. T-Rex were there. It was a great battle. I was going to this was, morning. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big battle about who was going to be headlined. And you completely... You were second from the top and kind of completely blew them off the, off, you know, off the bill, really. They couldn't follow you. Yeah. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> but I believe it's true. Yeah. Right, right, right. Why do, why do you think the faces just caught the... You caught that, you know, that wind at the time. Why? why I think, to be honest, we were, we were a bunch of lads all enjoying each other's company, and we could play as well. We could, you know, we were all good players and whatever. 
but we all like to drink, so that got in the way of the playing a little bit. So, and because when we were on stage, we, we were, it was such a laugh, you know, taking the piss out of each other, just anyone that's walked by, you know. And so we took that sort of feeling on stage, and we made the audience, they picked up on it, and we used to give the audience drinks, and they'd give us drinks, and so it was like one great big party. It's like they were in the band, and we were in the audience. Yeah. And you talk about being pissed when you, when you record as well. In the studio. Going. I tried to take it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> but you did, you made a lot of records at the time, didn't you? Faces made a lot of records, and, yeah. and Rod Stewart was making his own records. And yeah. Getting... Well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. well, he made the first album, yeah. Um, yeah, but there's enough, there's enough room for everyone, you know? Right, right, right. So I felt. Well, it was a very productive time. Yes, it was, yeah. But it couldn't last forever. No, no. Right. Let's talk, let's talk about uh, Ronnie and, and Steve, you know, post this time. You know, they, they, it seems that there's a kind of happy time, you know, in the 60s and the early 70s. And then after that, it's, it seems very sad for them. Is that fair to say? Yeah. With, with Ronnie. I mean, tell us a bit about, about Ronnie, you know, because Ronnie went off to do his... His own thing, well, didn't he? Yeah, he's, well, he's always been a bit of a gypsy, Ronnie. And so he's always been looking for something new to do and something adventurous. And I just got, I think he just got fed up with all the glamour and stuff and thought, I said, I'm just going to live in a caravan. <laughs> so <laughs> that's exactly what he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you, did you talk to him at the time about what he was doing? No, I, I, I kind of... You kind of leave someone on their own to do. He said he left the band and he just he wanted to do something new. So I thought, okay, let him do it. Right. We were all looking for different things at that time. So yeah, but he created some fantastic music, didn't he? Yeah. He certainly did. Him and Slim Chance. Yeah, yeah. Great, wonderful, wonderful. Great songs. Right, great, great band. They're still going as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course his terrible illness. Yeah. Well, uh, that never came as a shocked me because I, I Ronnie Lane's mum had multiple sclerosis and so when we first met each other I, we used to carry his mum up and down steps on, in a wheelchair and you know they say it's not hereditary but I, I really this it might be you know right, right. Uh, so and then Ronnie would always be forgetting something like his bass when we get halfway down the M1 and we've got to go back what's that well I've left my bass there <laughs> okay then, we, then he'd kind of fall over and trip over a little bit and we, we accused him of being drunk and he used to get upset because he wasn't, get, wasn't drunk at all. He was just... That was the early stages of multiple really? sclerosis. That's yeah. what I think, personally. Yeah. 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 Even though I had a secret bottle of teacher somewhere. Yeah. And so then, what Were you about, in touch with Steve Marriott towards Steve the end of his life? Yeah. Sorry? With Steve Marriott, were you in touch with him towards the end of his life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's, uh, he was... I mean, I, I regret the um, the reformation of the, the small faces when we did that. I wish we'd never done it. It was just a wrong thing to do. I didn't like to see Steve. It was a punk. T- well, he sort of tries to kind of get on well, the coattails of the punk movement, doesn't he? And he, well, changes he, he, his act. He did, and he was spitting on everyone, and he was swearing, and going, like, "Oh no, don't don't do it, Steve. I don't like it." So I used to get really upset about it, and I just didn't want to be around it. But anyway, we did. We, we let that fall apart, and that was it. Right. But he seemed a bit bitter at the end. It seemed it was sad, really. Well, he was, but to be honest, he, uh, well, shortly before he died, 
um, he was making an album in Nassau with um, Peter Frampton and trying to reform or do something with Peter uh, with, along the lines with Humble Pie and whatever. And they were getting quite excited about it. So he uh, made quite a few tracks out there. So when he came back, he just was raving about that. And then he um, obviously went, he went out to a friend's dinner party or so from the airport. And his wife at the time, Tony, was, was staying at the party because he just went back to, the, back to this little cottage. I think it was called Beehive Cottage, I think. I'm not sure. No, it might have been another one. Um, and that's when he, that's when the fire started and uh, whatever, and he died. Right. So 1979, you you got the call from the Who, and uh, 78. In fact, in fact, you were 78. 78. 78. In fact, you were, you were with Keith the night he died, I think. Yeah, I didn't bump him off, please. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I, I had nothing to do with it, Your Honour. Uh, no, I I was forming a band with. Um, can I go have a swig? Yeah, go on, go yeah. on. Because yeah. you. You, you, you write really well in the book about the, the business of being asked to join The Who and how that works, you know, musically and business in, in business terms. Well, it's nice to be in, in, in a band, uh, well, I'm jumping the gun a bit, where they did treat it more like a, a business, you know? Right. I was, I was forever trying to get the faces to invest in themselves. <coughs> Forget it, never, no way. It's just spend the money and just go and get pissed. Right. Whereas the Who were a lot more serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot more sensible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did you ask me in the first place? <laughs> uh, yeah, just about that whole business of being asked to join the Who. And well, the how do you, for a start, how do you replace Keith Moon? Well, you, you can't replace Keith Moon. I said that right from the off. It's impossible to, to replace someone as flamboyant and as mad and nuts and, as, as, uh, and his drumming style. Uh, is that you can't do it? So when I when I eventually said yes to them, and I've left a chunk of stuff out, it's in the book. Yeah. Uh, when I was asked to, you know, and I said eventually said yes, I said, you know, I said, but well, you know, there's no way I can. Uh, I mean, and the reason I said yes was uh, when when Pete said to me, oh, you've got to join. You're one of us. You're a mod. We come through the ranks together. He said, and so in many ways now. Keith's gone, we have a chance now to do something completely different. So I went, oh, okay, yeah, that makes it fine. That means I don't have to emulate Keith or anything mm-hmm. like that. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll join. And uh, so I found myself in that sort of trap of we never ever did anything completely different. Because I should have realised at the time, all the fans, all they, all they wanted was all the hits and all yeah. the Who music. Yeah. So I found myself playing that all the time. Yeah. But I said, you know, they all knew right from the off I could not uh, and I was not going to copy Keith in any way because it's impossible, you know, to play like him. There's only one drummer for the who, meant for the who, and that's Keith. So I'm just there you know, doing my bit. And I, I was just, I'm a straighter drummer. Funny enough, I can actually play a bit like him in a sense now if I think mad and just, <laughs> just think... Uh, you make the, the very interesting point in the book, which I never realised that the reason Keith Moon played a lot of it was standing up was because his tom toms were so oh, far. Yeah, toms, uh, which are literally right by that bloody light there. You know, just, uh, yeah. So you had to get up and walk over to them. Basically, yeah. No, no, yeah. <laughs> what was it like joining a group of people? I mean, it'd be like joining the Beatles. Oh, or, you know, the, the people who'd been together for 15 no, no, years. No, no, because uh, we were. 
the small faces and, and, and the who toured a lot together, especially in Australia and Europe and stuff, we were always together. And so it's like being in one band anyway. So I, was, I felt comfortable straight away. The only thing yeah. that I felt uncomfortable with was learning the Who's entire repertoire, right, within two weeks, which is nuts. I just, oh. shit, I'm making notes all over the place. That's where my session drumming came in handy. I made these little notes, go back to square one, teach myself how to read music and that sort of thing. So I made these little notes. It wasn't music, it was my parrot fashion music. So, but it really helped me. And how did you adjust to playing those gigantic venues? Yeah, well, I was used to those because the faces were... Yeah, you were playing stadiums by the end, weren't you? Yeah, we played lots of stadiums in the yeah. United States, yeah. Right. You re- you, you, I won't go into it here, but you write very interestingly in the book about uh, tensions within the Who about money, about, you know, deals going forward, and do you deserve the, you know... The... No, no, you're, you're referring to uh, um, the advance we got. Yeah. From And then part of the advance... The detail is in the book. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> yes, very yes. good detail. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. good. There was a, there was a, a, an amount of money, which was more than the advance, and it was for the prestige of having the Who on the label, and that was you know non-recoupable against royalties. In other words, it was a gift. Yeah. That's the bit that that Roger. Uh, didn't agree with me, right. me sharing that. But you're very forthright in the book about, about you know, arguments you had with people over things like well, that. Well, yeah, I, I, to be honest, at the, at the time, you know, I just joined the band and I was an equal member and I, I'm asked to split all that up and then, you, but you can't have this bit. I thought, it's a bit like an Indian giver. You can't do that. I'm either a member or I'm not. So I sort of dug meals in just on the principle of it. And at the, at the time... Looking back on it now, I should have actually said, you know what, yeah, leave it. But I didn't. But you're very candid about the relationships in the group. A, at the end, you, you, you've got to fall outside with Roger, and you feel that every time Roger looks round, he's expecting to see, he wants to see Keith Moon. Well, I, 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 I was putting myself in Roger's place, thinking, yeah. you know, because don't forget, I was literally, uh, Moon had only been dead three months, and, that, and, all I, and I'm, I'm right there. So, because I was always made to feel welcome straight away, and then suddenly the, you know, obviously when, when we're starting to play, and then suddenly it sounds like he should have been there, and Roger looks around and finds me there, and go, <gasps> you know, that's sort of, so. I it's fascinating. Yeah, so I, I I put myself in this place. I think, well, yeah, it must have been difficult for him. Well, Live Aid, the, the, the point where Live Aid happens in 1985, there's, again, there's been all sorts of tensions. I think Peter's wanting to leave the group at that point, isn't he? He's always leaving the group. Yeah. It's just, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm leaving the group. I said, oh, OK, well, again? Yeah, no problem. It's because it's he... It, there's something happens, something really happens where there's a problem or whatever. And because Pete was... He was heavily into being making. He wanted to be a solo artist. He wanted. To, he was doing Empty Glass as well, and that's his first solo album, and it, which was a great album. And he asked me to play on it, so I played on some of it. And I, one of the tracks I played on was uh, was Rough Boys, and I said, in, as I said it in the book, I said, I went to Pete. I said, Pete, uh, this is a Who track. I said, this is a great song. The Who should do it. And he said, No, no, it's not a Who track. Said, no, and completely. Dismissed me and said, "It's not. It's, my, it's kind of. It's nothing to do. It's not. A, no, it's not a hotel." So I, I, I thought, "It bloody is. It's real. It's the very nature of the 
So he's stockpiling stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was. He, I virtually accused him of actually nicking stuff for him, which he knew I was saying, you know. But uh, so anyway, so I still think it's a, it would have been a great Who song. Sorry. So but, when you when you played Live Aid, were you were you prepared for that show or? No, no. I mean, I remember being the, some sort of wine bar in uh, Bob Gelder. I've called up and said, "Come out, can I meet up with you guys?" So we all met him in a, this wine bar. I think it was next to the London Palladium. And there's a... Uh, just, it just said, oh, I, w- I really want you to do this gig where I'm o- organising this. Uh, I didn't even think Live Aid had a, a, a name. Or whatever. He said, we've just got loads of bands together, we're going to raise money for Ethiopia. So, and we said, OK, well, we'll do it, you know, no problem. And that was that. Right. So you just turned up and did it? Well, kind of. <laughs> right. Okay. Were you aware that it was the satellite had gone down when you were on, and you, you no, it wasn't not at the time. No, it's only when we saw it back afterwards. There's a couple of things you can't buy in life. Moments like that, where Roger goes, "Why aren't you fade away?" And the fucking thing blew up. There's only one other time this happened. We were playing uh, Buffalo in America, and we were doing. Rain on me. This, I got to that song. Uh, Rain on me. So I didn't think anything of it. Uh, suddenly, the, and just Roger's going, he's getting more, louder and louder. Rain on me. Rain on me. And suddenly the clouds opened up and fucking rain just. <laughs> so I pissed myself off. <laughs> we've we've got to ask you, what is it about drummers and polo? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm trying to find the antidote to it now. Because Ginger, Ginger Baker, Baker Polo, yeah. Stuart Copeland. Stuart Copeland. Yeah. Stuart, yeah. Any others? Or is it just the three Well, Mickey Dolan's funny enough. He's Mickey Dolan. He, 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 he did start to play polo. Yeah. Right. So we, we don't know why, why polo has this, uh, this appeal for drummers. And nor do I. <laughs> right, OK. okay. Yeah. But you currently you own a polo club. Yeah, well, I built it. Right. I okay. built it because it was... Uh, I bought some adjoining land. How it started was, I moved, just moved, changed to, to a new house, and and I, I, my wife and I were walking down the path to get to the post box, and and she opened the post and she said, "Here's, here's your post and this as well." And so, and I opened my post up and I went, I said, "Oh, great, check, big check for something, you know, like royalty check," and then she she said. You won't believe this," he said. "But the people we bought this house from, right, who sold our old one, are representing the people who've got the adjoining land to this one. Um, um, we want to know if we want to buy the adjoining land." So I, went, I looked at the, the, the check and then <laughs> just handed it over. <laughs> so I was thinking of other things to do with it, like buy a helicopter. I don't know. So, so uh, that was that. We bought the, we bought the land, and I didn't know what to do with it. So. And I'd just taken up polo properly, for seriously. I tried to get into it way back in 69, 70. Um, incidentally, Ginger Baker, that's when I first saw Ginger Baker learning how to ride and tried to play polo. Yeah, and he was just, all you see, he was sort of falling off his horse, running after his horse. <laughs> we, he had a wild bill hiccup, you know, the big sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. Fringe jacket. Fringe jacket, yeah. yeah. He was running after his horse like that. I've never seen such a funny thing in life. <laughs> So yeah, um, drummers. So you, you, but you, you, this is your your pet project, the Polo Club. Well, it's 
I, I didn't set out to build a polo club. I just, a mate and I, I've shown around, we're driving around the land, and I said to my mate, you know, I said, you know, I don't know what to do with it. And he said, it'll make a great golf course. I said, oh, yeah, okay, let's, let's get a golf course. So, <laughs> so we, we applied for planning permission to get a golf course, and of course, uh, that's how I met all the locals and the local um, uh, councillors and things and whatever, and the planning people, and it went on like that. And so they didn't like the idea of a, a golf course. So I went back to the planners. I said, look, you know, I don't know why I applied for a golf course. I said, I've just taken up polo. That's what I do. And so the, the land is reasonably flat, no, no material change to it, whatever. And I said, my problem is I, I've, got, I've, I've got this barn as well. I said, but because the, the original clubhouse to the golf course was a, a 15,000 square foot horrible square box, basically. I said, well, I've just bought this barn, and I said, it's great, it's really old, 500 years old. My problem is I don't know where to put it. And the planners went, we would put it right there. And I went, gotcha. So that's how I got my plan in. Right, right, right. So you, this uh, we're, we're, is a picture taken at... Uh, that's plan at the club, yeah. <coughs> at the club a couple of years ago? Yeah, well, when you, when you actually take up polo and you actually build a club, and you realise there's no money in... You can't earn any money from playing polo it's a mugs game like that so what I did was try to give it a commercial sort of slant on it and so we did corporate days and then I eventually got a music licence to do outdoor gigs and stuff so that's what we did so when I started to raise money for prostate cancer it wasn't the money so much I was trying to raise it was more awareness for, yeah, yeah. For, for guys to go and get them checked out so themselves checked out so and I asked uh, uh the who to do it and they said yeah no we come straight there so we reformed for that day and just did it and then later on I asked the faces and yeah no problem right, right. so we did it yeah we, ra- we ended up raising about 250,000 quid I call it by accident in other words I wasn't really looking for that it's an amazing amount of money to actually raise for prostate cancer UK um, and but the awareness I was getting, I thought, because I really wanted to get the word out. I couldn't, I couldn't say nothing and pretend I ne- never had it, because a lot of men are doing that, and some well-known people as well. Right, right. Well, it's a very worthwhile uh, culmination to the book. All that and more is in this terrific this is, book. I thought you were going to do a Raymond Andrews on me. This is your life. <laughs> We did the whole thing all over. There you go. Kenny Jones, this is your book. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by The Word.